Philippians. <laughs> Emulating worthy Christian leaders, worthy Christian examples. The word emulate, um, the definition for that, uh, according to the dictionary, says this, to match or surpass a person or achievement, typically by imitation. Now, it sounds weird to, to say or to hear said by someone, imitate me. And in, in church circles, uh, the, probably the most common objection to this uh, comes across in, in a phrase similar to, I don't imitate people, I imitate Jesus. Or, I don't follow men, I follow Christ. And I get that, I get the principle, I get the idea behind that, but that is an unbiblical statement. It is an unbiblical thought process, and, and it, it's tied to several unbiblical characteristics that can flow from that type of attitude and from that type of belief. Um, four big problems with that that we want to look at this morning, I feel like we'll also answer the question as to why we need to seek out and emulate worthy Christian examples. Um, the first one is, is pretty basic and it's pretty natural in that we were all created that way. We emulate other people naturally. We do it automatically, uh, especially as children. But I don't know that that ever stops throughout our entire lives. Um, young children, babies, they, they, they see their parents standing up and they want to stand up. They start pulling up on tables, on chairs, on couches. Uh, they see mom and daddy walking. They want to walk. You know, they start taking steps. They hear mommy and daddy talking and they start making words. It happens naturally. It's imitation. And they do it intentionally, and they try to do it. And young children especially will intentionally imitate other people. They'll intentionally imitate their parents or their siblings or things they see or hear on TV. Um, our youngest daughter, she's three. A few weeks ago, uh, I came home, and she came to the door. She usually does to meet me, and she gave me a hug and called me a silly mutt. Hi, silly mutt. So What? I didn't, I, you know, a three-year-old, it, it kind of, it was kind of, it wasn't real clear anyway. And I, I had to listen for what she was saying. She thought it was hilarious. And she was just laughing, silly mutt, silly mutt, silly mutt this, silly mutt that. Everything she saw for two weeks was silly mutt. Like, we don't have a dog. I've never said that around you. Where, where did you get the silly mutt thing? And then I hear Mickey Mouse call Pluto a silly mutt on this show that they watch pretty much every day. And I was like, ah. There it is. She doesn't have a clue what a silly mud is. She just likes how it sounds. It's funny. She's going to say it. Kids do that. But now adults do that too. I mean, we'll, we'll, ha we'll have a friend who, who starts a, a new phrase or says something we like. Oh, that's kind of catchy. I'll use that. I'll inject that into my vocabulary. We'll imitate hairdos, clothing styles, all of these things. And we do some of those intentionally. We do a lot of it unintentionally. A lot of emulation comes unintentionally. We have folks that rub off on us, whether we realize it or not. And I can prove this. I asked in first service. I'll do the same thing in this service. How many of you are not from here originally? You, you, you hail from up north, down south, out west? Okay, bunch. Bunch of people. Okay. Of those of you who raised your hands, how many of you think I have an accent? <laughs> See there? I'll tell you the same thing I told first service. You're wrong. You have the accent. <laughs> not me. In my job, and what I do every day, I, get, I deal with a lot of folks who are moving here from other places. And it is not uncommon for folks to stop me, to back me up, to have me to repeat something. In one case, really stands out of my mind. I was, I was talking to these folks about something, and, and the wife stops me, and she says, will you repeat that? 
I said, sure, and I went back through it. She looks at her husband and says, don't you just love how they talk here? I didn't hear it. I didn't get it. The thing is, my southern accent, if you think I have one, I talk normally. I think you have accents. You get that. I, I, didn't, I didn't develop that intentionally. I didn't hear that drawl, that twang, that uh, whatever it is that you hear in my voice. I, I didn't hear that one day and think, oh, I want to talk like that. It just happened. That's how I learned to talk. It's what I heard. It's what I grew up hearing. And it's the way I began to talk. We do that in life. And so if we're not emulating other Christians who are stronger than us, who are wiser than us, who are further along the journey than we are, we're either stuck where we are or we're going backwards. You get that? Other Christians are vitally important. And for us to imitate those folks and be around those people is vitally important. The second big problem with this whole mindset of I'm not going to follow other people, I'm going to follow Jesus is unless you are over 2,000 years old, you've never really walked with Jesus personally. At least not on a level that would allow you to emulate Him. Not on a level that would allow Him to rub off on you. That comes from personal contact. Now I know spiritually we walk with Christ. I know we know Him if you're saved. We can learn about Him and, and through Him through Scripture, but in order to get to the point where we are acting like Him and thinking like Him and emulating Him on a daily basis, that comes from being around others who are doing that and it rubbing off on us. So, so I can't imitate Christ unless I'm doing that. Plus, it, it opens me up to a, a, a real danger. There's, there's a real danger when I have the mindset of I'm only going to follow Christ and not, not, not look at the example of other godly Christian people it allows me to, to build a picture of Jesus that looks an awful lot like me. It allows me to invent a Christ who cares about all the same things I care about, who's consumed with all the things I'm consumed with, whose main goal and priority is all the same goals and priorities that I have. And I think Scripture teaches us we should be doing the opposite, shouldn't we? I mean, shouldn't we be about making our goals and priorities and lives about what God's concerned with, not trying to make God concerned with all the things that we're concerned with? I have problems in my life. I have things that, that concern me just like every one of you here do. And I get that. But if I'm only emulating a Christ that I've imagined, that I've pictured, that, 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 that comes from, from what I perceive Him to be without looking and seeing the bigger picture, then it is easy for me to lose sight of the things that are really so much bigger than my little, my little problems. And I'm not trying to minimize your problems here today. Please don't misunderstand that. I'm, I'm not doing that. Your problems are real and they're serious and they're, they're big in, in your life. I get that. And I've got those. But folks, around this world today, hundreds of people will die from curable disease, from lack of drinking water, from starvation. Some will be killed for their faith in Christ. Some will lose homes and families because of their faith in Christ. While others, a great many of those who lose their lives in this world, have never even heard the name of Jesus. It's estimated that approximately half of the world's languages do not have a Bible translated into that language. That's horrifying. 
So for me to look at my present light affliction and say this is what God's all consumed with and not see the bigger picture that there is severe, serious need in this world, that's, it's just sinful. It's just sinful. The good news is God is big enough and loving enough and omnipotent enough and powerful enough and omnipresent enough to be concerned with my problems and my issues and my concerns at the same time as being concerned with these big things. He hasn't forgotten about my little problems because they're small compared to this problem. But for me to consume myself with mine and, and think that's the end all, it's just wrong. And when I'm living my life based on my perception of who Christ is without looking to the godly example of others, I really, I'm in, I'm in big risk. I'm in big danger of doing that to myself. Um, the third problem with thinking like this uh, really is, is, is it's not biblical. It, it is biblical to emulate others. Uh, we see that throughout Scripture. We see that in the way our Bible is, is given to us. The Bible, that book that you hold in your hands or on your lap here this morning is, is the most incredible piece of written literature ever penned, ever, in the history of, of, of the universe. It is astonishing and astounding. It contains 66 individual separate books. It was written and compiled over a period of between 1,500 and 1,600 years. It was written by doctors and shepherds, farmers and fishermen, educated and uneducated, rich and poor, kings and nobodies, as they were inspired by God to write, written on different continents, and in at least three different languages originally before translated into what you have in your hand here today. The Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. It's an astounding book. Broken up into two major parts. We've got the Old Testament. We've got the New Testament. The Old Testament is exactly what you would expect to find in a, in a typical religious text. It contains books of history, books of law, books of, of prophecy. There, there's books of wisdom. There's songs and poetry. There are all these things that combine to make up our Old Testament. Then we get to the New Testament... And we see a, a, a drastic shift. 27 books in the New Testament. 21 of those 27 books are letters written from a person to a, an intended recipient, whether a church or an individual. Paul wrote most of those letters. All of John and, and, and Peter and James, there, there are others. But Paul is responsible for the majority of the New Testament. And, and I, I feel confident that had he known what he were writing at the time would be one day part of our Bible, he would have probably done it a little bit differently. Have you, ever, have you ever gotten to a point in your life where you looked back on something you did and you thought, you know, if I'd seen the significance in that at the time, I would have done it better. I mean, like high school, for example. You know, we, we, we get to a point in our lives where we look back and think, ah, oh, if I'd only known that, I would have done that completely different. If I'd known it was going to make that big of a difference, or if it was that big of a deal, I would have done it completely different. I think Paul would have done that. I think our New Testament would have been drastically different if God had cued him in on what he was actually doing. But I'm thankful that he didn't. Because it, it makes for some interesting reading, and it, it's real, and it's alive, and it's vibrant. And sometimes it's messy, and sometimes it's dirty, and there's parts of it you think, why is that even there? There's a great passage in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 13. We don't have to read, but, but this one stands out to me. Um, and it's Paul writing to Timothy, and he's expecting Timothy to come. And, and this, this verse is just packed with theological truth. Are you ready for it? I'm going to paraphrase it so you get the whole gist of it in our, in our modern vernacular. Timothy, when you come, 
Bring my coat. It's cold here. <laughs> Bring my coat. That's in the Bible. Now, why would God allow something like that to be in the Bible? I think the answer is clear. He wants us to see that the New Testament, things changed. It was no longer about religious activity. It was no longer about ritualistic movements. It was no longer about the law. It was about relationship. It was about following Christ and being an example to others so that they, in return, would follow Christ. And letters is a far more intimate, more personal way of writing than, than anything you could ever pen for publication. Um, so the way we have the Bible, I think that testifies to our need to, to follow godly example. We see the need to follow a godly example in, in, in the example Jesus himself set for us. You think about Jesus' life and, and the beginning of his ministry, he, he gathered a group of people who would be like-minded, a group of disciples who would listen and learn to be like him. His call to them was simple, two words, follow me. But his disciples understood that better than I think sometimes we do today because we don't have that concept of, of constant discipleship as a way of life in, in our country and culture. But when they heard that follow me, what they understood that to mean was, I'm not just going where he's going, I'm going to be like him. I'm going to do what he does. Yes, I'll be where he's at, but I'm also going to do what he does. That's what discipleship was all about. When, when a person went and, and left their family profession to follow a rabbi, a teacher, a master, they gave up everything about who they used to be to become someone else. And they would follow that teacher to learn to be like that teacher, to do what that teacher did. Um, a common term for that used in Jesus' age was, was the yoke of that particular teacher. Yeah, well, their doctrine was their yoke. That brings new life to, to what Jesus meant when he said, Come to me, all of you who are heavy laden and burdened. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. My burden is easy. My load is light. The yoke, what he was learning, what, what these men left home to do was to become like Christ. And this is seen perfectly in a story um, that we find in the New Testament, Matthew's Gospel of Jesus He's, he's, he's had a long day of teaching and healing and feeding. And he removes himself from the crowd and he goes off into the wilderness to pray. His disciples, after a time, they get into a boat and they kind of hoist out, um, set sail there. It's getting late. Wind picks up. The water gets rough. begins to blow. And they see something on the water that they had never seen before and, and didn't expect to see on this particular evening. They saw the shadow of a man walking on the water. They were scared, frightened. They didn't know what to think. They thought, this is an apparition. This is a ghost. Jesus, knowing this, he cries out to them and says, don't be afraid. It is only me. <laughs> to which Peter responds, Jesus, if that is really you, command me to come to you. Jesus says, come. Peter hops out of the boat, starts walking on the water. Have you ever tried that? Trickier than it sounds. Walks on the water. We know the story. He, he, he sees the wind and the waves and he gets a little intimidated and, and, and fear kind of creeps in. He begins to sink. Jesus lifts him up, gets him back to the boat, calms the water. The rest of the day, everything's great. The thing amazing about that story to me and, and should be to all of us is not that Jesus was walking on the water. It's kind of what we, what we levitate toward. That's not the amazing thing about this passage. Jesus created the water. Okay? 
created matter and time and space and all of those things. Obviously, if he created them, he's, he's master of them. He is able to walk on them. Walking on water for him is nothing. Shouldn't amaze us, really, that Peter was able to walk on the water because Jesus said, come. And listen, God will never tell you to come and do something that he won't prepare you or give you the ability to do. He wasn't going to tell Peter, yeah, come on walk, knowing that he was going to sink. He knew, yes, come, I will sustain you. I will hold you up. So that's not the amazing thing about that passage. The amazing thing about that passage is Peter's response in the first place. Why in the world was Peter's response to Jesus, hey, if it's really you, tell me to come. Why was his first response to think, hey, I can do that too? That would not have been my first response. My first response would not be, oh, great, I'm going to walk out there too. It would be good, get in here, let's stop the waves, I'm hungry. It's been a long day, I want to go to sleep. That would have probably have been my first response. His first response, totally different. His first response was, I want to do it too. And the reason for that was, very simple. Peter understood what it meant to be a disciple. I am to emulate my master. I'm to do what he does. He's walking on water, I want to walk on water. He's healing people. I want to heal people. He's feeding people. I want to feed people. He's preaching to people. I want to preach to people. That was the mindset Peter had as a disciple. That's what it meant to be a disciple. To imitate, imitate someone so much that you did what he did. And I, I think we, we kind of lose sight of that sometimes today. I know I do. Um, so we have that example of emulation. Emulation. Emulating, imitating a teacher that is worthy to be emulated. Um, and finally, we, we've got passages. We've got scripture that simply say, hey, imitate godly people. I'm going to pop a few of them up here on the screen. The first one's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 1. Paul here again. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. It's very similar to the passage we just read um, in chapter 3. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Another passage here, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. I urge you then, be imitators of me. There's a theme here. Hebrews chapter 6. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith, have, who through faith and patience inherit the promises. 1 Thessalonians 1.6 And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received word, for you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But we toil, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. And finally, our pastor today, Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, there are others that, that say this or, or things similar throughout Scripture. It's God's intent that we as the church emulate godly Christian people to become more like Christ and to pass that on. Um, now this process that we're talking about is gradual. Um, Lottie, my, my youngest daughter, her first words were not silly mutt. I mean, her, her first word was mama. 
very basic, very simple. And gradually it has grown and her vocabulary is getting bigger and getting more advanced and now she can hear things and she can repeat them. Um, the same is true for us as people. Our, our imitation of others, uh, whether intentional or, or subconscious, doesn't happen overnight. You know, a lot of times we, we as, as, as the church, we're really good and really quick to tell the lost uh, how, how much grace there is for them, how much God loves you. How much God will forgive you for anything you've ever done and, and will redeem you and will take all that and wash it away, separate as far as east is from the west, never to be remembered again, cast into the sea of forgetfulness. Come, Jesus loves you. He'll set you free. doesn't matter what you are. We're good at that with the lost. We're not so good with the Christian. It's almost like we got all this grace for those who, who aren't part of the body, but for those who are inside of the body, Eh, not, not, not so much. We'll forgive that person for anything in the world they've ever done, but this person over here who's been saved for, for generations or decades or years, when they fail, they mess up, they fall, eh, they should have known better. It's easy to wash our hands of that person. I'm going to stay away from them. They're not what I thought they were. They're not who I thought they were. I don't want to get to that. That's just, that's, they should have known better. We're all human. None of us are perfect. We're all apt and liable to make mistakes, small ones, big ones, little ones, itsy-bitsy tiny ones, and great big mammoth ones that everybody can see. But it's a process, and that process is seen probably better than anywhere else in the Bible in one particular verse, and that's in Psalm chapter 1, verse number 1. The Bible says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. Um, there, there are three people, three characteristics of people that we are to not emulate in that verse. Do you see those? The wicked, the sinner, and the scornful. Those are characteristics we, we don't want rubbing off on us. But do you see the progression from the people in that verse? The, the, the person who is doing the walking and the standing and the sitting. He starts out moving and then he stops. And then finally he sits. There's a progression there. This person didn't automatically start sitting in the midst of sin. He got there gradually over time. So just as, as our, our walk in righteousness to become more like Christ doesn't happen automatically, doesn't happen overnight, doesn't happen as soon as you say a prayer, uh, the same thing's true going the other way. I mean, the Bible says, bad morals corrupt good character. We hang around those people, we tend to become those people. We tend to be who we're around. Paul gives this warning in, in our passage today in Philippians of what not to follow, of what to look out for. Look, look at Philippians chapter 3, verse number 2. <clears throat> it says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Another great thing about letters, Paul didn't really cut any corners here, pull any punches. He didn't hold back. He said what's on his mind. I like that about these. I like that about Paul. There was a situation going on in the church at the time that Paul was writing this, um, the church as a whole. There were, there were groups of people who had infiltrated the church. They were called Judaizers. They, they, they had a doctrine that was kind of mixed. They had faith in Christ. Salvation comes through faith in Christ plus all these legalistic kind of things you've got to do. 
Basically, the, the, the theory was this. In order to become a Christian, you first have to become a Jew. That's, that's probably more simplistic than it needs to be, but it's, it gets you a good idea of, of where they were headed with this. They tried to impose the, the law on the Gentiles. They said, sure, you can come to Christ, but you've got to be circumcised. You've got to obey our dietary laws. You've got to obey all of our ritualistic laws. And when you do all that, then you'll be a Jew, and then you can be saved. And Paul's saying that's not the case here. In fact, that's where that, that watch out for the dogs thing came from. The, the dogs was a term that the Judaizers used to describe the Gentiles. They were dirty. They were dogs. They were animals. So he's kind of throwing it back in their face with this verse. Um, and he goes a little bit further. Because what this process did, what this thought process did, was not only did it make it more difficult to be a Christian than it, than it, than it is and than it should be, it minimized Christ in the picture and it maximized the individual. It maximized their ability to do good, to be nice, to, to not be bad, and it also brought self-glory to those who were imposing all this stuff. They were basically saying, look how good I am, you need to be like me. Which cut Jesus out of the picture entirely. So Paul says here, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, this is Philippians 3, 4 through 6, though I myself have reason for confidence through the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I have more. Because these guys that think they, they, they have all this to glory in, listen, let me tell you something. If we were going by that measuring stick, I'm better than they are. I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. What Paul is saying here, he basically gives them five categories of things about himself, some of which he was in control of, others which he had no control of whatsoever, but areas of his life to look at and say, look how good of a person this guy is. All right, he starts out with his, with his heritage, with his family heritage. He says uh, he had no control of this. He had no control over who he was born to and what family or what they did to him as a child. But he says, on the eighth day, back circumcised, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a man among men. You don't get any more Jewish than I am. That's basically what he's saying there. You don't get any more Jewish than me. I'm it. I'm at the pinnacle there. So he goes on. And he says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. Now that accompanied two things. Number one, there was social status that went along with being a Pharisee. And we don't see that a whole lot today because we hear Pharisee in church and we think, oh, bad guy. Self-righteous, uh, self-glorifying. These are the guys that, that had Jesus crucified. Bad, bad guy. But at the time, these were the most looked up to people in the country. I mean, these were the religious leaders. These were the guys everybody wanted to be. These were the guys that the, they stopped when you saw them walking down the street and just wanted to watch them. All right, these were the guys, if they were around today, paparazzi would be everywhere, taking their pictures. You'd see them on, on late-night TV, all the scandal. This, this is who these people were, okay? They were who everybody just exalted. So Paul's saying here, I had social status that was up there. Not only that, but along with that pharisaical title came vast biblical knowledge. Vast biblical knowledge. In order to get to the level where Paul was, memorization of, of basically the entire Old Testament. I mean, right there. How many of you have memorized that? 
not me. And that's not easy reading. We talk about letters, the difference in the letters. Have you ever, have you read Leviticus? <laughs> have you read Deuteronomy? I mean, this stuff, he knew it. Vast biblical knowledge. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Somebody's religious activity here. He's saying, listen, I was as active in church. I was as active religiously as I could possibly be to the point of persecuting the church of Christ. And finally, the last thing, as for righteousness under the law, blameless. Five things there that he mentions. Family heritage, social status, biblical knowledge, religious activity, and a moral lifestyle. Now, who can tell me what those five things have in common? They're all good things. They're all good things. Aren't those really good things? I mean, what's wrong with family heritage? Having a good family heritage, that's a great thing, right? I mean, there's, that's nothing to be ashamed of. That's something to be treasured. Social status, although it can be misused and abused, social status, being well-known and well-liked in the community, that's not a bad thing in itself. Biblical knowledge, you can't have too much biblical knowledge. That's not a bad thing. Religious activity, I mean, we need more workers for Christ, don't we? And finally, moral lifestyle, a moral, a clean moral lifestyle, there's nothing wrong with that. Those are all great things. But those, church, those five good things were the things that kept Paul away from Jesus. Those were not the things that brought him to him. Those were the things in his life that kept him away. So Paul's saying here, don't, don't look at those things. God's trying to show us, don't look at those things as our example. Look at these things. What should we emulate? If it's not that, if it's not those things alone in themselves, what should we look to? Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, we find these words. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your, for your welfare. The first thing we need to look for in, in people who we seek to emulate is their concern and their love for others. That's how we know we're saved, right? We have a love for the brethren. We love others. We have that love of Christ in us. Jesus exemplified that in his life here. And those who are following him closely should exemplify that in their lives as well. Next passage in Philippians 2.22. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. There's two things in that verse that we need to look for in people we seek to emulate. And the first one is someone who has proven themselves, someone who, who has gone through trials, who has accomplished and gone through things that we haven't yet gone through. It's good to be with those kind of people, to know how to overcome things in our life that we haven't yet faced. But ultimately, it doesn't stop there in this verse because he goes on to say how he was like a son to a father in the ministry. A son, someone who is growing, who is learning, who is continuing to mature. So while Paul understood, and in this verse, he even goes on in letter verses to say, I've not got there yet. I've not achieved yet. I'm not where I want to be yet. I'm not saying that I'm there yet. We need to seek out those to emulate who haven't reached the pinnacle. If you're following someone who says, I'm as good as it gets, I've got it figured out, I've got all the answers, been there, done that, know it, Get away from that person. They're dangerous. And finally, Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. <clears throat> the last major characteristic to look for. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ or that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. We need to seek to emulate those whose only boast in this life is Jesus. Those five characteristics, those aren't things to be shunned. Those aren't things to, to automatically disqualify someone, obviously. But if they're alone, if they're without the power of Christ, if they're without the desire of knowing Christ, if they're without the love that comes from Christ for others, if they're without any humility in that everything I have, everything I know is from Christ, then it's useless. And guys, here, here, here's, the, here's the deal. Here's the goal. This is the purpose. <clears throat> and this is why this is so important to emulate, to imitate, to follow worthy Christian leaders and examples is that it makes us more like Christ when we do so, but ultimately it helps those who are following us. The goal is for us all in confidence to be able to say, just as Paul did, be an imitator of me as I imitate Christ. Now, I don't know about you here this morning, but I don't have... I'm like Paul. I'm, I'm, I'm not there yet. That scares me to say, follow me, imitate me, imitate my life. Because I know me. I know my life, and I know my weaknesses, and I know my struggles, and I, I know all those things. And to, to be able to say that to someone, imitate me, that is horrifying to me. But ultimately, at the end of the day, guys, whether you have ever verbalized those words or not, whether you have ever looked at anyone and said, follow me, be an imitator of me as I imitate Christ, whether you've ever opened that invitation up to anyone or not, I guarantee you someone is anyway. Somebody's following you. Somebody is imitating you. Someone looks to you as an example and says, I would like to be like that guy. It could be somebody you work with. It could be your spouse. It's definitely your kids. I guess that's the thing that scares me the most. Let's seek to be the kind of people who can say, imitate me as I imitate him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word, for the opportunity we've had to stand here in your presence and in the presence of this congregation. God, we thank you for the family you have allowed us to be as a church, for the call that you've given each of us in our lives, Father, for those who you have seen fit to put in our lives to love and to care for and to be loved by and cared for by. God, it is my desire to be more like Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would continue to send. And I'm thankful for all those you have sent, but I pray that you continue to send others into my life who will be strong, godly examples of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And it's my prayer for this church as a whole, God, that we would seek out those people, that we would look for those that we could imitate and ultimately emulate, that through us we could further be an example to others. A strong, strong push in our church here, God. A, a strong desire to, to be there for our kids and to have a strong children's ministry and, 
to really be an example to these young people. And God, that, that comes from having mature, stable, firm, older people. Help us, God, to understand we're being watched. That young eyes and not so young eyes alike are on us. And help us, God, to live our lives in a way that would ultimately reflect back your glory, your honor, your majesty, and your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we want to offer you the opportunity to just respond to the gospel and respond to what Christ has done for us. This morning you may have been worshiping with us for a while and you're already about